Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a one-woman book podcast where I use my background in teaching fiction to unearth the overlooked and underappreciated genius within Stephen King's underrated works. Hello, everybody. I hope you are well. I hope your summer is going as well as can be. Do forgive the delay from the last time we were together. I feel like I've been apologizing a lot this summer, and with good reason. In all honesty and full transparency, I've been a little party girl. No way around it. I really have. I've been jaunting all over the place. I just got back from Las Vegas, one of my favorite cities in the world, where I wore dresses, casino hopped, saw shows, stayed up late, drank a lot of cocktails. I had a grand time and I lived life and I think I'm making up for lost time a little bit after the two years of blip of nothingness that I feel we've had since the 2020 insanity. But I've had a very lively summer lots of pool time, lots of friends, and because of that, my reading schedule has been delayed a little bit. I do apologize, but today I am happy to report I am at the official halfway point of Wizard and Glass. Yes. So I have the 1996 Plume paperback. It clocks in at a whopping 667 pages. So when I began this journey, I decided, all right, when we get to page 334, we're going to stop. We're going to stop and put the car in park and unload. And that's what we're doing right now, folks, because this thing is a whopper of a novel. Wow, guys, my emotion is in the red. I am just one big puddle for this story. I, oh my God, it just seems that each Dark Tower installment is getting better and better and better, and this one is really off the charts, guys. I've heard a lot of Dark Tower fans praise The Wastelands as their favorite novel, but I don't know. Granted, I haven't finished this one, so it's perhaps a bit too soon to project, but thus far, the first half of Wizard and Glass has my whole heart. Oh my goodness. Okay, so what we're going to do with today's episode is similar to what we've done with past Dark Tower episodes, which is a very loose goose format. I don't really take the formal novel analysis approach with Dark Tower because it is such a unique mixed bag. It is all over the place, and I feel the traditional elements that we usually put under the spotlight, they're just not here. We've, we've got something entirely new and different. So this episode, similar to past Dark Tower episodes, is going to be really loose and flowy. And so the format for this episode is everything I'm loving thus far. We're just going to take notice of everything I've gathered in terms of what our story is, where we're taking a break at, and questions, just a few, but just kind of stopping, pausing, reflecting, breathing, because my heart's been pounding for a good 200 plus pages. Oh my goodness. So it's going to be loose and flowy and free, and I'm hoping that whatever questions I vocalize to all of you, you can maybe throw me a bone, maybe help me out a little bit. There's a couple things within the Dark Tower world I'm still struggling to understand. More on that later, but... Before we get into it, I wanted to highlight a very important topic that I feel is pretty necessary for me to put forth. Now that I am officially at the halfway point of Wizard and Glass, it is my very first time reading it, everybody. By the way, if you are new to the show, welcome. We hope you stay a while, but I have never, ever read The Dark Tower before. This is my first time reading these books. In these past couple months, I've made my way through The Gunslinger, Drawing of the Three, and The Wastelands, and so it is my first time reading Wizard and Glass. I am very new. 
I still fantastically, miraculously, beyond my own understanding, have managed to remain spoiler-free. I don't know how it's happened, knock on wood, but I don't know what's going to happen, guys. I don't know what's going to happen to these characters. I don't know how the Dark Tower ends. The only thing that's been moderately spoiled for me, and it's really not even a spoiler because I can't really say I know what it means, I did have a friend of mine at a party long time ago, before I had the good sense to pause him in his tracks, mentioned that Susanna had something to do with spiders later on down the road. That's all I know. I don't exactly know what context that would be, so that might be a partial spoiler, but I'm okay with it because I just don't get it at this point in time. But I literally don't know what's going to happen. I'm completely in the dark. I have no idea. I have my hypotheses. I have my guesses. And yeah, we're in a good spot going forward. But I was recently chatting with Matt R., the co-host to King Size, and we're going to have an amazing constant reader interview dropping next week. We were having a chat and he had mentioned how several dark tower junkies out there, several enthusiasts, and I don't know if this is you, it's definitely not me, are encouraging their non-dark tower brethren to avoid the gunslinger and just start with drawing of the three. And at first, I kind of mulled this over and thought it might be maybe inappropriate to not read the entire novel, but you should at least read book five. You need to read the last chapter, The Man in Black, where the man in black and Roland have their palaver. That is so huge. That is such a pivotal chapter that melted my brain and completely got me on board and intrigued for the next book. So I was of the belief that, well, at least don't skip book five. But now, now that I am halfway into Wizard and Glass, I realize I am wrong, dear friends. No, 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 no. And my ultimate stance is, I'm sorry, you have to suck it up and read The Gunslinger, period. Guys, you can't skip it. Don't skip it. Don't encourage others to skip it. Don't, don't, don't. You have to read The Gunslinger. Yes, it's difficult, but there are so many pivotal moments that have echoed into Wizard and Glass. Had I not read The Gunslinger, I feel I would have lost some of that very resonant, relevant power that is present in the text and present in the first story. There are so many huge things that happen in Gunslinger that echo over into the forthcoming novels. For example, Roland is the hanged man, that tarot card, right? There's a lot of symbolism and representation that has to do with that. Roland, of course, observes the chef that was hanged for poisoning people. That echoes over here in Wizard and Glass. We also have the duel between he and Court, where we lose David the Hawk, precious, amazing bird that he is. But that opens up to Roland's first sexual experience right after the battle with Court. That's a huge thing. There's a lot of essential components within the gunslinger. In addition to those I mentioned, you guys remember Sylvia, that crazy lady who was impregnated by the Crimson King? Yeah, it's a wild scene and there's kind of like a mystical firearm abortion that is totally banana balls. It's so crazy, I think I break it down. I I read the entire scene in my Gunslinger episode because I was so confused. It is wild times, let me tell you. But Sylvia and her definite witchy-woo roots really remind me of this dark female entity known as Rhea of the Coos. So, Sylvia slash Rhea, there's some parallels there. Bottom line, do not tell your friends to avoid the gunslinger. We all need to unanimously get behind that. Suck it up and do it. Get the audiobook, get the physical text. It is short. You can do it. We will help you through it. We can discuss each book after you're finished, help you make some sense of it, but don't skip it. So that's my little soapbox and might pop up. Furthermore, as we interact with the contents of this episode, but please read The Gunslinger. 
All right, guys, before we transition to everything I like thus far about Wizard and Glass, I wanted to kind of break into it a little bit with a small summary. So this story is absolutely wild, so it's a little bit of a challenge to distill it into a tiny paragraph, but in a very vague, ambiguous summary, Wizard and Glass picks up right away with the end of the 1991 Wastelands cliffhanger with our quartet, Roland, Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi stuck on a high-speed bullet train that is ultimately going to end their lives and derail. Fortunately, the quartet is able to escape Blame the Mono. I won't spoil exactly how, but they're able to escape the train and they end up in Topeka, Kansas around the 1980s. We don't exactly know which 1980s, as it seems to be a different kind of timeline that Eddie himself is not familiar with. But once the quartet is in Topeka, Kansas, they realize the world has been ravaged by Captain Trips. And once they find a little bit of safety from digesting their reality that this plague called Captain Trips has wiped out everybody, they hunker down quite literally around the fire, and Roland begins to take everybody back in time to the story of his past. The story that will kind of let everybody know in the quartet why Roland is the way he is. So that's what I've gathered thus far about Wizard and Glass. I know it's a little bit of a vague description, but I think it'll work. If you haven't read Wizard and Glass in a while, it might jog your memory a little bit. If you would like to take a breather and read it or spend some time going through the audiobook, or maybe you have a copy at home and you just want to refresh yourself on a couple plot points, you are more than welcome to do that and feel free to wait on this episode until you feel refreshed. I am going to most definitely probably include some spoilers just because the content of this story is rather important, so tread cautiously. Just a warning to everybody out there. So once more, I am going to talk about everything I love thus far within Wizard and Glass, what I've observed, all that good stuff. That's coming up in the next section. I will see you there. everyone thank you very much for hanging out with me as we dive into the first half mind you this is only part one ladies and gentlemen the first 300 pages of the 600 pages that encompass book four the dark tower wizard and glass so i stopped at page 334 I have not gone further because we're going to talk about what we've learned thus far about this pretty fan-freaking-tastic story. Granted, the first 300 pages are quite stellar. Never know, I might hate the next 300. To be seen, to be learned, but for right now, I have four categories I want to chat with everybody in terms of what I'm really enjoying thus far. So our first category is Strong Foundations and structure. So we have, as I mentioned, the page number count, a pretty thick one, guys. This is a very substantial text. And right away, this story kicks off with quotes from two literary works. Number one, the classic forever eternally wonderful Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And we also have Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. So The fact that those are referenced at the very beginning of this novel indicates to me they are heavily present throughout the story, and in fact, they are. And I love that. I adore 
Romeo and Juliet, despite it being cliche, I don't care, I think it's amazing, and Wizard of Oz is just classic, fantastical literature that is so a part of our pop culture, especially from the 1939 film, so these are two stellar literary examples, and they are interwoven into Wizard and Glass, and I really, really, really like that. This novel is divided up into four parts. Part one, Riddles. Part two, Susan. Come Reap. And part four, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, All God's Chillingot Shoes. I very well could be butchering that. But we have four parts and several mini chapters in between the parts. We have alternating third-person omniscient narrator. And so in these first 300 pages, I have completed part one, Riddles, and part two, Susan. They're pretty substantial, several hundred pages a piece, and right at the 300-page mark, I hit part three, Come Reap. The other aspect of the structure that I really, really love is the first part of the novel begins with our quartet. We are, as I mentioned in the summary, right where we left off on Blaine the Mono. It's Roland, Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi. We are hoping for the best that they can somehow escape, and they do because Eddie shines so bright. Yes, he does, and it's because of Eddie that they are able to escape Blaine the Mono. I was really getting nervous there for a second, but they made it. So I want to say the first 50 to 60-ish pages, if not a little more than that, we're with Roland and the Cotet. We are in Topeka, Kansas. We are learning about Captain Trips. And then we start to listen to Roland's story. And that's it, folks. For the next several hundred pages, we are way, way, way in the past when Roland is a very young man. I'm not 100% sure what Roland's current age is in the present day Cotet Wizard and Glass slash Wastelands remnant. At the end of book five of The Gunslinger, again, another important reason why we should read it, after Roland chats with the man in black, and learns what the Dark Tower is a little bit, and it's super wild, crazy acid trip, he wakes up and has aged 10 years. So it is my assumption slash hypothesis. I believe Roland present day is approximately late 30s, if not mid 40s, I'm guessing. However, in Wizard and Glass, I believe Roland might be around the age of 16 to 17. Susan Delgado, the love interest and such a precious baby angel, is 16 years old. So this is just the full-blown, full-fledged power and intensity of youth, of being a teenager, of love, infatuation, all that good stuff. So I want to say, based on the text, we know for a fact that Susan is 16 years old, but it's hinted at Roland might be that exact same age, if not a year younger. I think he might be 17, but unknown. But this is such a pivotal slice of his life because it is hinted at to the reader that what happens to Roland at this season of his life affects him for the rest of his life. And we have that sort of tinged throughout the narration that this is the reason why Roland is who he is, wants what he wants, is determined, cold, stoic, brooding, all those things that we enjoy about him. This was sort of the start of that. So super crazy good. That's sort of the structure, our four parts. And we begin with the quartet, we transition into several hundred pages of the past, and then right at the 300 page mark, we had a tiny, tiny interval, just a two page interval, where we go back to the quartet just for a few moments, and then we are back to Roland's memories. So we are back in the past, and I'm assuming, I also did a little bit of sneaking, that we will rejoin the quartet at the very end once more, and then that'll kind of conclude it. So I'm really loving 
the storybook nature. This is very fairy tale esque. I love that the past and Roland's memories are really coloring this entire narrative. And it's kind of refreshing. I mean, the quartet, we've been with them for two solid books, advancing, discovering each other, getting out of scrapes, avoiding danger, fighting their way through really bad situations, loving each other, taking care of each other. Like, we have a really beautiful group of friends and a married couple. It's great. I love the content. It's so strong. But now, King is making the reader take a breather and kind of sit at this campfire with everybody and stay still and go back into the past and hear about what went down to young Roland, what happened to make him who he is, and kind of explain a little bit more about this world that has moved on and maybe to talk about the greater topic of a heartbreak can sort of destroy you for life in a way, maybe, I don't know, to be seen. But what I'm kind of, and this will lead me into my next category, what I'm definitely trying to digest here is I feel the looming tragedy on the horizon. But my next category, number two, is true blue romance. Oh my goodness, guys. Okay. Um, all right. So I didn't really want to do this. I didn't really want to get super candid and talk about my own personal psychology slash past, but in the moment, YOLO, here we go. So I did want to bring this up because I think it's relevant. I've kind of mentioned throughout several podcast episodes how horror was never something I sought out in my life, especially as a youth. That was not something I rebelled with. I was a little bit the exact opposite. A lot of peers or people who I speak with who fell in love with King at a young age did so by sneaking some of his books. They knew it was for older people, they knew it was scary, and so they sought it out to kind of rebel in that way and get exposed to the horror world or really mature content on that spectrum. For me, it was not horror. Mine was romance. And the reason why that is, is because I grew up in a household with a Catholic mother. Well, I should say she wasn't a practicing Catholic, but she was raised Catholic. And so I was in a household with her where every time we would be communally watching TV and flipping channels or watching a movie or a show, and there would be any kind of love scene, before my mom would change the channel, she would say, oh, that's nasty and then she would change it. And that was the only adjective I ever heard associated with sex or sexuality is nasty, right? And so this was very confusing to me because in cartoons even, in children's shows, they hint at love and romance between cartoon characters. They have the little heart eyes and being smitten or wanting to kiss certain characters and chase after them. Like, that is exposed to children at a very young age. That is presented to them. So I was very confused that it was fine on cartoons, but when it was actually two adults kissing, my mom would say, oh, that's nasty, that's bad, and change the channel and turn it off. So there was always a lot of negativity and shame surrounding sexuality in my household. Granted, I was not raised Catholic, so it wasn't super shoved on me, thankfully. Very grateful for that. My father was also not Catholic. This was all just my mom's upbringing. And so this is not to besmirch the Catholic Church, but factually, the Catholic Church and its teachings don't exactly celebrate sexuality, do they, right? So there's a little bit of shame surrounding that, and I think my mom has that deeply deeply rooted in her psyche and so she didn't really mean to uh weird me out about it but haphazardly it did so what happened was precocious little kim c decided to seek out this knowledge this forbidden knowledge i wanted to learn as much as i could about sex I wanted to figure it out, I wanted to understand why it was bad, and if it was bad, well then I wanted more of that. So I started to sneak romance novels, and thankfully, I mean, 
In retrospect, it wasn't that bad. I was watching a lot of soap operas, reading romance novels. Present day kids, I mean, we have the internet, guys. Imagine, it's horrifying what kids are exposed to nowadays, like truly ungodly terrible. But I was seeking out all of this romance stuff. I was curious, I was into it. So I've read a lot. I've read a lot since I was a youth. Granted, I didn't really understand exactly what was going on, because as you know, in romance novels, there's a lot of euphemisms, there's a lot of flowery language, and just a very poetic way of getting down to business. And so in in looking back, I probably just should have went for an anatomy textbook. I probably just should have did the health slash scientific way and figured out my curiosities with that. But I pursued lots of romance novels, I would sneak them at the library. My grandma had a stash of paperbacks hidden in her garage that I would fish out. Like, I was always reading them. And over the years, I would kind of, I was a little bit, I had an eye for it of like, what's a good romance? What's working? What's not working? And it's a little feather in my cap. I I think that uh, I have a good eye for it. It's something that helps me educate fiction writers when they're trying to pursue that romantic plot line between their characters. It's something quite helpful and I don't regret it. I have no regrets. Over the years, especially since grad school, I have abandoned a lot of the romance novels because I just stylistically can't really tolerate them anymore. My palette is quite sophisticated without being too snobby. So I don't read a lot of romance anymore. However, it's, it's like anybody in regards to that expression beauty is in the eye of the beholder like you know it when you see it you just know we can tell that's why films and television when it works it works and so king has brought us a truly wonderful romance guys like oh man and up until this point in my king journey i hadn't really encountered many super duper strong king romances The ones that I remember off the top of my head that were pretty good were, of course, Johnny and Sarah inside the dead zone, but that one is very short-lived and it's a little bit unrequited and it's more tragic than anything. There's Jake and Sadie inside of 11-22-63. That was absolutely beautiful, but although there was a lot of sweetness between the two of them, I don't feel we got a lot of time that was outside of the crazy, cool, fast-paced suspense plot that we have inside of 11-22-63. And then there's Scott and Lacey Landon, which is a lot of cute, quirky weirdness about seasoned love. But here, guys, oh my gosh, King just outdid himself. He really did. And he did a really classic, old-school Romeo and Juliet, passionate, all-consuming, true blue romance between Roland Shane and Susan Delgado. They are young, and it is more than just sex. They are in love with each other. They are on fire for each other. They will do anything for each other. And King plugs into one of the most successful romance tropes out there, which is forbidden love. And that's what makes this such a success, guys. He puts them in front of each other, allows them to have this great meet-cute, this wonderful connection, this passion and interest and intrigue because Susan's a little bit of a spitfire. She's kind of blunt and feisty and Roland, of course, is a little serious and stern and everybody is just young and beautiful and alive. And so they completely fall in love with each other. And what makes it more intense is that they can't be together. They can't. So what we learned thus far in Wizard and Glass is that Susan is and this is so crazy, this is wild, it seems as though the society we're currently in, this world that has moved on, which is totally soaked in kind of cowboy western culture, more on that in a little bit, and it's pretty proper and refined and uh, heavily based on manners and customs, but there seems to be this custom where it's perfectly okay for a beautiful young maiden of the town to be the concubine and mother of any future offspring 
to one of the town's wealthiest, most influential men. And Susan has been chosen as the Reap Queen. I don't know if that's exactly connected to her being the concubine, but she's been chosen and it's very much a business deal. I think papers have been drawn up, money has been exchanged. This is a business transaction and Miss Susan is caught in the middle. She is the chess piece. And unfortunately, she's going to be the concubine to a very old, unattractive gentleman of power and wealth and influence named Mayor Hark Thorin. So even though he's already married, which is a little bit yuck, Susan is going to be his concubine, and this is so that he can have more children. So unsure if he just hasn't been able to sire an heir yet or what, but he's going to have more children. It's a good thing. Susan is bought and paid for. Ergo, the love that she feels for Roland, who is her own age and completely every dream she's ever had and his for her, they can't be together. And that is so successful here, guys, because throughout the first 300 pages, King pushes them together in these wonderful scenarios where they're just right in front of each other's faces and looking into each other's eyes, and then he pulls them apart and he does it again. He pushes them together, and he pulls them apart. And what this does to the reader is it makes us crazy, guys. Like, we feel such intense desire for them to be together because we're in love with their love. And that's what happened to me, guys. I started to notice right away that, okay, what King is doing here is not pulling any punches. He is not hiding anything, or rather, letting anything burn slowly. Right away, Roland wants Susan. Wants her sexually, of course, of course, but he burns for her in a passionate love kind of way. Like, he just wants to be close to her. He really wants to be with her as a love companion. He wants to take care of her. He just wants a life with her. Right away, King makes that pretty firmly established in Roland. And he does the same for Susan. Susan just, these kids are burning for each other. And what's great is that the reader knows this. The reader has both of those stories, both of those feelings from those two characters. We have those in our hands. And so it just feels so intense as the reader because you want them to get together. You are cheering for this couple. And so thankfully, right at the cutoff point, blissfully, right at the point where I was going to stop and chat with everybody, we have that love consummated. And I'm so happy. It was so romantic, guys. King did a beautiful job of giving the lovers everything they need, which is a beautiful setting a safe place for all of that love physical love to be exchanged so we he's really using the playbook of the classics right if we refer back to romeo and juliet we have that wooing stage at the house of the capulets where romeo is smitten like he's absolutely like this woman's the rest of my life and she feels the same And so, of course, they're exchanging letters between their two families, the people who support them. We have that here with some additional characters. They're trying to communicate, they're trying to make contact, and then they have the push and pull, push and pull, until finally they get a quiet, beautiful moment, a sacred space for all of that consummation to happen. Very romantic, so good. And thank goodness it happened right around the 300-page mark because... I was Jones and guys, I really, really needed them to be together, especially because Susan, unfortunately, our precious Susan is promised to a very gross, unattractive, lecherous guy who we don't want him anywhere near her. We want her to be with Roland. And so there's this real intense reader devotion to that. And so King starts to raise the stakes with everything that Susan is up against, everything the lovers have against them. So the consummation, it's just forbidden, it's dangerous, 
so good and he did it and so i did sneak to the end of the book guys to look for the king letter and he does give us one in the plume paperback it's very short and sweet but it was enough for me it didn't reveal anything but he was just kind of discussing why this book took as long as it did and he explains i can't recall it exactly but he says suspense has always come very easy to me but love is hard and so i think he wanted to indicate to the reader of course this is just me this is a personal hypothesis to maybe show what might cause roland to break as deeply as he did and i'm thinking first love you know that one really cuts the deepest it can it doesn't happen always but it can i mean let's look at it folks teenagers you know they are feeling their hormones they're in their bodies they're the most young and alive they'll ever be especially for young males i mean the sex drive is just off the charts they also have never felt it before and it's it's when you've never felt something like that before it is all-consuming completely intense and i really love this quote from a romantic film that came out a few years ago starring joaquin phoenix it was the ai love story her i think it was amy adams she was a co-star and she says falling in love you're legally insane and i think that makes total sense and i think we can all identify with that you're insane you can't think of anything else everything gets affected you don't sleep you don't eat you just are 1000 percent consumed mind body and soul on someone and it's powerful it is the biggest drug high of your life there really is nothing like it and i think we all wish and hope that people experience that that it also goes well because it can go south too because heartbreak is just as devastating and it's usually a result of of that first very druggy high but king really does an outstanding job guys with this true blue romance it is tinged with romeo and juliet i know something bad's gonna happen i just know and i know because king isn't allowing me to run off into the clouds with my fantasies he is indicating throughout their love throughout these moments of closeness between them that it is not going to last forever so i know that roland's alive but i don't know if susan's alive so i'm prepared for the worst there i think it's gonna end badly which is sad but i i am glad that king isn't exactly going the full route of romeo and juliet because we have zero indication that it's gonna end badly for romeo or juliet we have hope that they're gonna be able to make it they're gonna get to mantua they're gonna live together they're gonna be married and have lots of babies and it's gonna be fine and they're gonna denounce thy names and totally just be free and they're not going to be montagues or capulets anymore and it's going to work out it's going to work out uh king doesn't let me feel that i wish he would but he doesn't he does not allow me to run away with that which is tragic but i'm grateful i'm grateful that i know something bad is going to happen to susan i don't know what it is but in their love scene in this little grove this beautiful tree grove with a little babbling brook there it's so picturesque and romantic they are having sex for the very first time and king mentions that as they are joined together they are joined in doom and the literal word doom guys is dropped and so yes it is ka but that's heartbreaking ka oh my god so i hope i'm wrong i hope that uh reading the text this closely is just maybe he's just throwing a red herring and maybe everything's gonna be fine but as cranky and brooding as and sad as roland is in present day i just know this is gonna go south real hard so i'm kind of preparing myself now at the halfway point but simultaneously i'm so enjoying this love story guys it is real it feels genuine and after the precocious little kim c who has read hundreds uh, yeah i would easily say hundreds of craptastic some decent romance novels i've learned a lot on what makes it work 
and he is pulling from the right playbook guys he really is he's working with that forbidden love he's working with that teenage passion and infatuation and that all-consuming desire to physically be close to each other to share that space to protect one another it's so powerful and it's real it's real it's real it's real i love it it's just working so well and i've never ever read king do romance like this guys like this is on another level oh my god it is on another level those previous texts that i've mentioned i just he is really really impressing me here because i have not seen him do it quite like this before so he's making me very happy i am just i i am giving him a little curtsy on this one this is incredibly strong i'm so wrapped up in this even though i know it's just gonna explode (laughs) in my face god i just know he's gonna destroy my heart throw it into a wood chipper 100 percent but man god i would read this again just to experience this closeness and this love between the two of them and it's precious 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 all right category number three we've got a western sci-fi medieval hodgepodge and stephen king's writing style is far away So one thing I'm noticing in this novel, guys, is that I feel transported to another time and place that I have no idea, but the richness in this writing, it is filled with lore and that world building that I always knock Steven for, especially with his alien stories. I'm always wanting more world building and I'm like, give us more, Steve. And here we have it in spades. When we're in the Dark Tower, we have it to the 10th power. And so at first, in the first, I want to say 200 pages when I'm in the town of Hambry and I'm learning about lots of the gangs of three, I should say. We'll talk about characters here in a second. But there are so many formal customs. The language is very high speech. And I think Roland, I think it's even called that, like the high speech. They speak a certain way. There's a lot of decorum and formality. And it seems very knights of the round table it seems extremely medieval at the same time it's incredibly western i feel the big wide open spaces within this story the small towns the small little governments we've got the sheriff and the mayor and it's just a a small little close-knit group of people it doesn't seem to be a huge cosmopolitan metropolitan space that's just choked with humans these are small little towns that really channel that western cowboy motif and yet we have all these science fiction elements such as the oil drums and these gas companies that are kind of present day and I don't know what to do with that, guys. Like, at first, I was all hung up on, like, oh, we're totally in a Western. This is a Western. King has given us a cowboy romance. I love it, love it, love it. Yes, I'm here for it. And then I was like, wait a minute. We've got some sci-fi stuff. We have mention of these previous gas companies, these new technologies. And then there's this medieval element to it with the language, the very rich expressions used, the long sentences. It's just a completely different style, guys. I just, Steve is, I don't know who's writing this, guys. I don't know who's writing this because I cannot recognize Steve in anything. I am, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm just shocked at the richness of this storytelling. It feels incredibly old world. The word choice, it's just completely not his style. And I'm like blown away. I don't know who's writing this story. I am transported. Somebody else just, I don't know who's writing this. So Steve is far away and we have a totally awesome hodgepodge of genre settings. It feels like a cowboy story like 90% of the time, yet there's a lot of sci-fi medieval hodgepodge. That's I just keep coming back to that. That's what we have here. Totally wild. It's working. Oh my god, I love it. It's such, it's confusing but delightful. It's so awesome. So my fourth category to kind of round us out is our cast of characters. 
All right, dear ones. So in addition to our quartet, right? So once more, we've got Roland, Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi, right? So we got our five. We have a crap ton more people that you have to keep track of in this story. So it's pretty robust. We have a very hefty batch of characters. So I had to take some notes to keep everybody straight. But this is a rich world. This is immersive. This is a very strong set of memories that are really going to open up and explain to us what exactly went down in Roland's past. So the first one I want to talk about is impressive and also creepy. We have our sort of dark goddess entity, perhaps. It's just a theory right now that we are introduced at the beginning to the local witch and she is pretty much just described that multiple times from several people throughout the story. Rhea of the Coos. I don't know if it's Rhea, Rhea, potato, potato, Rhea of the Coos. And I don't know what Coos is or what it means. I know that there's like a really crass, dirty word that's spelled differently. I don't know if that's what he means. Can't say for sure. Maybe I'll learn about where Coos is, but Rhea of the Coos is pretty much a quintessential frightening old witch. She has two cats and they're a little bit mutant. One of them has six legs. I don't know if they both have six legs, but she has a lot of power and influence. And it seems as though all people in this town, specifically Sheriff Avery, Mayor Thorin, all of these people in status, everybody kind of listens to what she says or holds what she says in high esteem. So there's a pretty, it is unsettling, but it's also slightly erotic, not gonna lie. There's a very eye-opening scene with Susan at the very beginning of Roland's memory jump where Susan visits Rhea of the Coos for a kind of quality assurance check that's quite physical. Basically, Rhea molests her, and always one can be molested. However, it's also a little bit of a sexual awakening for Susan because she is as pure as the driven snow. Like, she is fresh as a daisy, this Susan. She's never interacted with her body in that way yet, and so this old woman is kind of doing it for her. It is slightly erotic, and I think King did that on purpose, and I... I don't, what's difficult about it is that clearly Susan is not consenting. She's not consenting at the same time. She's, she's not hating it because I don't know. I have some problems with it because if I look at it, it's slightly ironic, but at the same time, this is very inappropriate. So do what you want with that. I think one can argue both sides, but it was very eye-opening. I was like, okay, okay, okay. All right. Whoa. So... Rhea of the Coos is very interesting to me. And what's more interesting is this powerful stone she has that is pink glass. And I think I'm going to learn much more about that in the second half of the novel. But this thing, guys, uh, gives her the power to see into the future. So this lady has a lot of power. She is not just old and gross. She is powerful. She is even engaging in some self-poisoning a little bit. Like, she kind of poisons herself to build up an immunity. Like, she's she's in it. She is in the saw. She is doing it. And she is not our friend. She is a villain. She is not on the good side whatsoever. She, I think, could be on her own side. She could be playing a game of one. That is a theory I have, but... Most certainly, we could put her in the villain category, but she is one I will be watching, as it seems as though this is a very powerful, mystical individual with a lot of influence. So, I do love my dark goddesses. If you guys have heard my latest installment on the women of Stephen King, where I chatted with Matt H. not too long ago, check it out if you haven't, but Rhea is very, very cool. Number two 
We have, of course, sweet baby angel Susan Delgado. She is 16 years old. She is a quintessential maiden fair. She is blonde and beautiful. She's the daughter of Patrick Delgado, who was, well, he died, but we're learning in the narrative that he may have been killed. Don't quite know what's happening with that yet. More on that later. She is being supervised by her aunt Cordelia, who's a little bit on the spinster side and is very unkind to Susan. Susan is definitely just viewed as a meal ticket and something to preserve for monetary gain, and that's it. So Aunt Cordelia is always in her business, always giving her a hard time, making sure that she makes it to reaping day, which is the terrible time in which Mayor Thorin will finally be able to consummate his lustful desires because she is bought and paid for as his concubine. However, Rhea of the Coos has declared that it's only going to be a profitable match if they wait until the reaping moon, which I'm gathering is indicative of the new year, maybe New Year's. So they have to wait. Ergo, Aunt Cordelia isn't kind, doesn't care about her at all. Seemingly, what I've gathered from the text, all she cares about is that she is respected in society for delivering on the goods. Number three, we have another villain, Mayor Hark Thorin. This guy just seems like a lecherous, gross old guy. He is described as such, sweating and foul breath, he is gross, and we just feel a lot of sorrow for Susan, who will have to contend with this person sexually, and it's gross. And he gropes her every chance he gets, it's nasty. But Mayor Thorin is a person of influence, and there are three bad guys associated with him, and they are pretty integral to our story as a trio who... Roland seems pretty haunted by Roy de Pape, Eldred Jonas, and I forget the first name, but Reynolds. So de Pape, Jonas, and Reynolds are a trio of bad cowboys. I don't think they're gunslingers. I think they want to be, but they're not. They're a trio of miscreants. They're definitely bad guys who are after Roland and his friends. They work for Thorin, or rather are connected to him, so I kind of associate all four of them together. DePape, Jonas, Reynolds, Thorin. Seemingly, they're all up to no good. They are pretty cutthroat, violent, and cunning. So I'm nervous about what's ahead, especially with DePape, Jonas, and Reynolds. DePape in one scene was giving this older guy a hard time asking for information about what he knew about Roland and his friends, and he just shot him in the chest immediately after, just cold-blooded murder right in front of everybody. So they ain't messing around, and I'm concerned. We've got three very defined cutthroat villains, three bad guys associated with an even yuckier bad guy, Mayor Thorne. So remember when I mentioned we got threes everywhere? We got three guys who are bad in a trio of villain gang. Then we have Roland and his two friends, Alan, although I think it's pronounced Elan or Elan. It's different in the audiobook, but Alan, Cuthbert, and Roland. So buddies from Gilead. They are in Hambry. They were sent away, so they're kind of hanging out together, but they have fake names in order to be protected. So they are going by Will Dearborn, that's Roland. Richard Stockworth is Cuthbert, I think, and then Heath. So once more, my notes got fumbled. So we've got Heath, Dearborn, and Stockworth, and those are the code names for Alan, Cuthbert, and Roland. So I was busy. King really kept me on my toes with this story, guys. So we got threes all over the place. Three, three, threes. Next, we have Sheriff Avery, who with Mayor Thorin kind of seems to be the law. There's the, the sheriff and the deputy. Like, they are kind of right next to each other. And 
I don't have good feelings about Cher Favorite. I haven't had him in the spotlight too many times. He's usually there in public gatherings or town hall stuff where we've got a bunch of people in the town in one spot, but he hasn't really shown himself to be wholeheartedly negative, but I'm concerned about him. So Cher Favorite, I'm putting him in the same villain basket as Mayor Thorin to Pape. Jonas and Reynolds. All of them bad guys, assuming. Don't know for sure. And then lastly, we have a sweet soul named Shimi. He is a young man with an intellectual handicap, so he's a little bit challenged to connect with people, but he's got a sweet spirit and he is very helpful to Roland and his friends who treat him well, kind of look out for him, and he's kind of a delivery guy. He connects with Susan, gives her some notes, and he's able to throw off Inquisitors. So Shimi's pretty sweet. I'm nervous about him. He's a sweet soul, and I really want him protected. I don't want anything bad to happen to him, but this is a King novel, so buckle up. But Shimi is uh, one of the characters I really like thus far. I hope it goes well for him. Unsure, but he's been immensely helpful with propagating the love affair and the tender moments between Susan and Roland, for which I am very, very grateful. So, those are the cast of characters thus far, guys, and I know there are more to come. So, not only do we have the five in our quartet, but dang, we had so many more. I have several pages of my notebook filled out so I don't forget these guys. I've got them in my sights. So before we go, I wanted to read a small section of the text that really indicates just how different King's writing style is, how much of a cowboy story this sounds like, and all around just how immersed and transported we are we are not in Kansas anymore. That's all I gotta say, guys. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I want to read this section that really indicates just all of the above. So this is on page 265. This is the beginning of chapter 8, Beneath the Peddler's Moon. Ritzy was like an ugly lowered head between a pair of huge shrug shoulders, the foothills. Above town to the south were the clapped-out shacks where the company housed its miners. Each puff of breeze brought the stench of their unlimed communal privies. To the north were the mines themselves, dangerous, undershored, scratch drifts that went down fifty feet or so and then spread like fingers clutching for gold and silver and copper and the occasional nest of firedoms. From the outside they were just holes punched into the bare and rocky earth, Holes like staring eyes, each with its own pile of till and scrapings beside the adit. Once there had been freehold mines up there, but they were all gone, regulated out by the Vacastus Company. DePape knew all about it, because the big coffin hunters had been a part of that little spin and rary. Just after he had hooked up with Jonas and Reynolds, they had been. Why, they had gotten those coffins tattooed on their hands not fifty miles from here in the town of Wind, a mud pen even less ritzy than ritzy. How long ago? He couldn't rightly say, although it seemed to him that he should be able to. But when it came to reckoning times past, DePape often felt lost. It was hard even to remember how old he was, because the world had moved on, and time was different now. Softer. One thing he had no trouble remembering at all, his recollection was refreshed by the miserable flare of pain he suffered each time he bumped his wounded finger. That one thing was a promise to himself that he would see Dearborn, Stockworth, and Heath laid out dead in a row, hand to outstretched hand, like a little girl's paper dolls. He intended to unlimber the part of him which had longed so bootlessly for her nibs these last three weeks and used to hose down their dead faces. The majority of his squirt could be saved for Arthur Heath of Gilead, New Canaan. That laughing chatterbox motherfucker had a serious hosing down coming. DePape rode out the sunrise end of Ritzy's only street, trotted his horse up the plank of the first hill, and paused at the top for a single look back. Last night, when he'd been talking to the old bastard behind Hadigan's, Ritzy had been roaring. This morning at seven, it looked as ghostly as the peddler's moon, which still hung in the sky above the rim of the plundered hills. He could hear the mines tink-tonking away, though. You bet. 
those babies tink-tonked away seven days a week, no rest for the wicked, and he supposed that included him. He dragged his horse's head around with his usual unthinking and ham-handed force, booted its flanks, and headed east, thinking of the old bastard as he went. He had treated the old bastard passing fair, he reckoned. A reward had been promised, and had been paid for information given. Alright, so that's just a slice of, like, where are we, guys? We are in a cowboy story. What? Wow. Where is Stephen King? Who is Stephen King? I don't know who's writing this, because, dang, it's just so rich. It is so rich. The way he goes about expressing, painting this world, it is just rich. That's all I have. That is the descriptor. That is the adjective. King is rich, 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 and paints this world so vividly. So vividly, guys. Granted, I still have some questions. So my one question that I'm heading into the rest of the novel with, that I'm struggling with, it was recently mentioned, so perhaps I'll learn more. Of course, I'll learn more as I finish up, but for right now, I have no idea. My first question is, who is John Farson and what is the affiliation? So it seems as though John Farson is someone who has extended throughout the previous books. I just wasn't paying attention or I was clearly didn't remember because once more, final time, please make sure you read The Gunslinger because that scene with Roland and the hanged man, the chef who is hanged outside of the palace or the the castle or wherever that was that they were living and working he poisoned people on behalf of john farson so that is brought forth in the gunslinger apparently at least it's said that it was here so i don't know who that is and i don't know what the affiliation is guys so i need some help hopefully i will get that figured out in the second half if anybody has any helpful resources that won't spoil anything for me feel free to reach out to the show and give me a heads up that's the only big question i have i know that there are more than that but we'll save those for later right now john farson and the affiliation what's going on there that's really all i have for this first installment guys of course there are more i could talk to you for days and days and days on how much I am enjoying this, how much it has been such a delight to read and experience this very vivid world of Roland's past. And it's totally different. It's a complete 180. I don't even know what to think. I just, all I want is for Susan and Roland to be together forever. And that is not going to happen. And I'm devastated about it. But I'm having a great time, guys. I apologize that it has taken me such a long time to get this going, but I have been enjoying my summer, and I hope all of you are as well. Whether it is hot or cold outside, I hope that you're taking small moments of pleasure to enjoy yourself, whether it's with a treat or a drink or company with people you love. Let us break bread and palaver and enjoy the moment because, you know, it's pretty rough outside and it always has been. And and the cynic in me thinks that perhaps it always will be, but we won't go down that road quite yet. Enjoy your summer. What's going to happen next week is I'm going to drop my fantastic constant reader interview with Matt R. from the King Size podcast. It is magical folks i can't wait for you guys to hear it it is just stellar 10 out of 10 that's gonna happen and then hopefully the week after i can get you the rest of wizard and glass however it might be two weeks after just being honest i have another 300 pages to go i promise to shake a leg and get this done in a more timely manner and hopefully we can round out summer with at least another king title in the works because we've been dragging ass a little bit not gonna lie we have we don't regret it but we would like to get back to our regularly scheduled programming for sure but i hope you guys have been enjoying all the friends i've been making it's been very very fun for me to get to know these folks and 
interview some pretty incredible constant readers out there and learn where their king journeys began. I hope you've been enjoying those. Once more, if you haven't shared the show with a friend yet, please do so. Please reach out to underratedsk at gmail to say hi to me anytime I check my emails early and often and I will respond promptly. Let me know what you think of the show. Let me know if you have any suggestions, recommendations, resources. Come at me with direct quotes. I would love to chat and learn from you and connect with where you're from and what you think about the show. If you would be so kind, please head to Apple Podcasts and give us a five star. And if you would really love to make our day, please say something nice about the show so we can attract more King readers and more non-King readers to hopefully get them to take the chance. Once more, thank you guys so very much for hanging out with me. I gotta get to work and continue on reading the rest of Wizard and Glass and find out what happens to Suzerash, dang it, oh my god. As well as what's gonna happen with this pink wizard stone and this crazy witchy boo lady named Rhea of the Coops. I got a lot of work I gotta do, but I promise I will be back soon. I love you all. Lots of hugs. Stay cool or stay warm, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.